This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. My name is Harry Helling, and I'm the Executive Director here at Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. It is my great pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Josh Stewart. Josh is a fifth-year PhD student in the Marine Biology Program at Scripps. His research is directed at better understanding and protecting oceanic manta rays, mobula rays as they're called collectively. Josh's dissertation research is on the spatial ecology and population connectivity of mobulids in helping to generate the information necessary to improve global management and conservation. In addition to his academic work, Stewart is a founding member and associate director of the Manta Trust, a nonprofit organization that has improved the conservation status of manta rays and mobile rays around the globe by translating scientific research into direct management action on local, national, international levels. Additionally, Stewart and the Manta Trust have been working with National Geographic's Critter Cam team to attach um, to study diving behavior and location as well as what they're doing at each location. Most recently, Josh has received the prestigious, prestigious Switzer Environmental Fellowship from the Robert and Patricia Switzer Foundation. In support of his important research work on mantas, please join me in welcoming Josh for his talk titled, Seven Years with Mantas, A Journey of Discovery. Welcome, Josh. Thank you all for coming. Great turnout. Uh, I have to correct Harry. Right now, my formal title is actually almost Dr. Josh um, for uh, you know at least a little while still. Um, okay, so this is actually my third talk uh, here at the aquarium, and I see a few familiar faces out there, and I decided that uh, so it doesn't get redundant, I'm going to try something a little bit different tonight. And so normally I give a talk about uh, mantas, information, sort of a lecture format. Um, most people tend to stay awake. We get a few snoozers in the back. Uh, but today I'm going to try instead telling you more about uh, my experience with mantas, uh, how I first got interested in them, and what sort of motivated uh, the research that I've been doing uh, and my love and appreciation for these animals. Um, and along the way, you will still learn a lot about mantas, uh, but you'll see a little bit more about my motivations as well um, and the work that we've been doing here recently. Okay, uh, so... My very first manta is not this manta. Uh, My first manta I saw in the Dominican Republic. I was an undergraduate. Uh, We were doing some uh, reef surveys, some biomass surveys. Uh, We were all in the water, floating around. And in these areas that we were working in, we didn't really ever see anything big, you know, little reef fish and corals and stuff like that. Uh, And we happened to be right on the edge of this big, steep drop-off. And I was looking out towards the drop-off, and my three dive buddies were all looking back towards shore. Uh, And we were kind of getting our gear ready, clipping it all together. Um, And I look up, and here's this enormous animal coming out of the depths straight towards me. And, you know, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I kind of grabbed my camera and and started pointing it and thought I was getting this sort of amazing Nat Geo moment on camera. Um, And this huge animal comes up, and it gives us, you know, a really nice sort of belly shot like that, uh, turns away and swims off. And nobody had seen it, right? I was the only one that saw it. Everybody else was still looking at me. And I was screaming and screaming to try and get their attention. 
and I was so astounded by this animal that I had forgotten to hit record on my camera. <laughs> and, uh, and that was a real problem for me because uh, nobody believed that that had actually happened, you know, just a few feet behind them. Um, and I spent the next several years trying to convince them that it was real, uh, to no avail. <clears throat> but so, so this, was, uh, this was my first experience with a manta, and I was just completely left awestruck by their, their size, uh, their grace, how beautiful they are. Um, and this was sort of my first, uh, my first itch uh, to work with these kind of big animals, big marine megafauna. Uh, but that itch had to lay dormant for a little while. Uh, it wasn't until after I finished my undergraduate degree when I had this incredible opportunity uh, to travel around the world as a Rolex scholar, uh, working in these sort of uh, experience-based internships with various experts doing research on uh, different animals or ecosystems. And I spent uh, a month during that year in the Maldives, where I was on a daily basis surrounded by um, hundreds of mantas, these little reef manta rays. Uh, and I was there working with uh, Guy Stevens, who's now a good friend of mine, uh, and, a, and a colleague, a close collaborator. And at the time, uh, this was back in 2010, Guy was probably one of uh, four people, by my count, who were doing any sort of active research with manta rays uh, in four different locations around the world. So very few people actually working on these animals. Um, surprisingly, not that much interest from the research community at that point. Uh, and so while I was here learning about mantas, um, being surrounded by these incredible scenes like this, uh, you know, feeding aggregations of hundreds of animals, it was an incredible opportunity for me uh, to learn as much as I possibly could about mantas. Uh, and it only took about a month to learn everything there was to know about mantas at that point. Uh, and that was really what was so striking for me, uh, was you know, not just spending time in the water with these guys, but learning about really how little we knew at the time. Um, and this is only you know, seven years ago now. Um, so now uh, what I'm going to do next is kind of give you the background that I learned at the time uh, to catch you guys all up to speed. So we're all on the same page moving forward. And as we go and I tell you, you know, these various things about mantas, I'll also try and highlight all of the huge knowledge gaps that we had um, at the time. <clears throat> so I'd like to start by just talking about what a manta ray is. Uh, so there's a difference between manta rays on the, your right here and uh, mobula rays, which are on the left. And a lot of people get these confused with good reason. Uh, they look really similar. Mobula rays are sort of uh, smaller versions of manta rays, mini mantas. Lots of people sometimes think that they're seeing baby manta rays when they see big schools of these guys. A good example are the mobula monkeyana, named after our very own Walter Monk. Uh, they have these huge aggregations down in Baja um, of, you know, still pretty big animals. They're about a meter across, hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, and, you know, I often hear about people who have been in the water with, you know, thousands and thousands of manta rays. Uh, and normally they're talking about these mobulas. So they live in similar habitats. We often see them uh, together or getting caught in the same nets. Uh, the big difference is size. That's how you can tell the difference, um, as well as a few other morphological features, which I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about. Um, but what we're going to be talking about tonight are the manta rays, which are on the right. So at the time uh, when I was in the Maldives, only a year before, uh, two different species of mantas were described. So before that time, uh, we and everybody else in the world thought that there was just a single species of manta. Uh, and then in 2009, they were split into two different species, uh, the reef mantas, which are down on the bottom here, and the oceanic mantas, which is the top image. 
And fair enough, they look pretty similar, right? Uh, I'd have to give you guys a whole lesson in order to be able to tell the difference between the two. Now the reef mantas, they're a little bit smaller, uh, topping out around four and a half meters, which is still pretty big, you know, about 15 feet across. Uh, they live in, in reef habitats, as the name suggests, uh, and they tend to uh, be a little bit more residential. So they hang out, uh, they're in areas that are easier to access. Um, they're sort of the poster child for mantas, right? They're the, the ones that if you've ever been diving in Hawaii or the Maldives, Indonesia, those are the mantas that you probably have seen. Now the oceanic mantas, these guys, again as the name suggests, uh, live in more offshore habitats. So they live out in blue water at sea mounts, uh, shelf breaks, little islands out in the middle of nowhere is where we tend to find them. And uh, as a result, we actually knew a lot less about those guys, right? So they're harder to find, um, harder to study, and they don't tend to stick around for very long. So they're not very reliable in trying to find them. Um, so unsurprisingly, pretty much everything that I'm going to tell you uh, from this point forward was what we knew about reef manta rays, okay? We knew almost nothing about the oceanic mantas. So we had some sort of sense of where they live. Uh, we know that they tend to be in tropical, subtropical waters, occasionally in temperate waters, a little bit cooler, uh, but certainly never getting down to the poles uh, or really cold water. So they like that, that warmer water. We know that they can live for a very long time, um, and we know that by tracking individuals using their spot patterns. And we're going to talk more about this later on, uh, but every single manta ray has a unique spot pattern, sort of like our fingerprints, uh, and that pattern stays the same over time. It doesn't change, and uh, they're more or less unique to individuals. In some occasions, you get a you know, completely blank manta and that's hard to tell the difference between two completely blank mantas. Uh, but as long as they have spots, they tend to be uh, unique spot patterns. And so by tracking these individuals, uh, you know, maybe some of you guys are divers and maybe you've taken photos of mantas. Uh, by comparing photos that you've taken maybe back you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago and photos of the same individuals now, we've been able to tell that mantas live for at least about 40 years and probably more like 50 or 60. So these are very long-lived animals. Now we can also track individuals uh, to see <clears throat> how often they become pregnant and give birth. And so by doing that, we know that depending on the place, mantas, female mantas uh, take about a year to become pregnant, uh, a, a gestation period of about a year uh, before they give birth. And they become pregnant, again, depending on the place, every roughly two to seven years. And after that one-year gestation period, out comes a little manta burrito. Uh, and when they unfold, they're already about 1.8 meters across. So these guys are about six feet across when they come out, uh, which is huge, right? And at that point, they're uh, completely self-sufficient. There's no maternal care like what we see with mammals. Uh, they go off on their own, um, and actually we're only starting to learn about where the juveniles spend their time, because uh, we don't typically see them alongside the adults. So you might be wondering, Josh, where do these manta burritos come from? Uh, and we're going to need some earmuffs and some uh, blindfolds for the kids out there. Uh, it's going to get risque. So th this is a, uh, a manta courtship train. And this is something that we see a lot uh, on reefs, especially at cleaning stations. So mantas will come up to cleaning stations and allow the little cleaner fish, the reef fish, to pick parasites off of their body. Uh, but they spend a lot more time at these cleaning stations than they need to just to clean. 
And a lot of the other things that they're doing are chasing girls. Um, so what we have here is one uh, pregnant female, and she's being chased by a group of quarters, uh, a bunch of uh, males. And so they'll, she'll mate with them immediately after she gives birth. Uh, so they're kind of getting a jump on this, trying to uh, see who's the best fit before she goes off and gives birth and then immediately mates again. And so you'll see a bunch of these males all sort of vying for position, who can get closest to the female, who can impress her, who's the fittest male. Uh, and she'll do these kind of crazy turns and uh, dodge and weave through divers, across the reef, down deep, and so on, uh, presumably to weed out the less fit males who can't keep up with her. So a lot of parallels with humans, right? Okay, so... Here's a still image of one of these mating trains. And after we have a lucky male um, who's you know, ready to mate and has proved his worth, he'll uh, snuggle up to the female. And they don't have any arms, right? And they have to be swimming constantly to move. Uh, so instead of snuggling and hugging and that kind of thing, uh, he bites down on her pectoral fin and flips his belly up to her belly, and they copulate. And often you get these uh, jealous males who will come up and try and get in the middle of this or stop it from happening. So again, just like us. <laughs> OK, so these, uh, these mating trains are really impressive to see. Uh, and they often get mistaken for similar behaviors in a completely different context, uh, which are these feeding trains. And you can see why somebody might mistake the two. So mantas are these enormous uh, planktivores, right? So they're filter feeders. Uh, what we're seeing up on the top right is a, uh, a manta with its cephalic fins, the horns that give it its scientific name. Uh, its cephalic fins unrolled, uh, helping it to filter seawater in, which it uses to sieve out uh, zooplankton, right? So they're feeding on huge numbers of zooplankton, huge quantities, and they have to maximize that uh, feeding success, right? So they're trying to filter as much as they can all at once in order to get big and strong and chase those females. So what we're seeing on the left is one example of uh, cooperative feeding behavior. So if you're a little zooplankton and there's a huge vacuum cleaner coming your way, uh, there's not that much you can do. But you can jump up really quickly and you can jump down really quickly. That's kind of their one uh, method of escape. They're able to move really quickly up and down if there's a manta coming their way. And so the mantas, having figured this out over millions of years of evolution, uh, will stack themselves above and behind each other so that you know, if you're a little zooplankton, you think you're safe, you jumped out of that guy's mouth, uh, well, here comes the next one to swoop you up. Um, so that's one example of cooperative feeding. Uh, another strategy that they use to maximize that foraging success are these barrel rolls, which are really famous. So you know, a lot of times, maybe you're driving your boat along, uh, and you see these big white flashes in the water. That's a, a telltale sign that there are mantas around. Um, so again, what that's doing is allowing them to hit that same patch of zooplankton again and again and again, uh, so that they're getting the best bits all at once. And then this really amazing behavior that we see in the Maldives uh, is the only place in the world where we get this. This is called cyclone feeding. And so this is a cooperative feeding method where you can get uh, up to about 250 uh, mantas all at once feeding in a gigantic chain that spirals from the surface all the way down to the seafloor about uh, 60 feet below. And that's all uh, because this one little bay is really good at concentrating huge volumes of zooplankton. Uh, and then at the slack tide, the mantas come in and do their best to eat it as quickly as possible, uh, helping each other out. 
And so these guys are able to get huge by feeding on these tiny little microorganisms, zooplankton. Okay, so a little recap. Um, mantas are big, right? So the biggest, the oceanic mantas, they can get up to uh, certainly seven meters across, so 22 feet across or so. And uh, there are records of eight-meter-wide mantas, although those, those, they haven't been officially verified. So that would be about 25, 26 feet across. So that's like, you know, from here to certainly past that column. Um, so big, big animals. They live for a really long time, uh, so 50-plus years. They've got exceptionally low reproductive rates. So that one pup per pregnancy every two to seven years, that's right at the bottom of fishes, right? It's probably one of the uh, lowest fecundities of any fish. And when you add all of these things together with what we think are pretty small population sizes, you get a species that is very susceptible to fisheries, right? And sure enough, uh, mantas are really good at getting caught. So uh, if you set out a surface set gill net in some areas where there are plenty of mantas, you're probably going to catch a manta. If you set a bottom set gill net, you're probably going to catch a manta. Uh, purse seines catch tons of mantas. They even get caught in weird things like these midwater trawls. How on earth did a manta get caught in a midwater trawl? Uh, long lines even will catch mantas and mobulas. So they're really, really good at getting caught, which isn't great for them. Um, bycatch has probably had an impact on these populations for as long as we've been uh, fishing at industrial scales. And then when I was in the Maldives, uh, we had a couple of folks come uh, visit the project, a couple of filmmakers, who had been reporting on a growing trend of targeted fisheries for mantas. So not only were they being caught by accident at this point, but there was this growing fishery uh, in places like Indonesia, Sri Lanka, where uh, instead of just throwing a manta back, because they're not very high-quality meat, uh, I haven't tried it myself, but I hear it tastes pretty bad, uh, it's not very valuable, they're huge, they take up a lot of space in the hold for the, sort of the uh, price that you can get for their meat. Uh, so instead of catching them and throwing them out uh, or keeping the meat, instead they were keeping only the gill plates which were being dried and sent uh, primarily to China, other places in Southeast Asia as well, uh, where they were being used as sort of a traditional, uh, although it's not traditional, pseudo-remedy uh, to cure you know, any number of ailments from uh, uh, measles to acne, cancer, and so on. So sort of this cure-all uh, with, of course, you know, no scientific basis for any of those uh, remedies. Okay, so this is kind of what I learned at that time. And uh, at that point, I was completely hooked. So we've got a big, charismatic animal, tons of fun to be in the water with. Uh, they're super curious animals. I don't, can anybody ever been in the water with a manta? Yeah, so you guys know what I'm talking about. They're super intelligent. Uh, they'll come right up, totally harmless, play with you. They're fun to be with, right? So that's, that was uh, great for me. It's always nice to enjoy spending time with the thing that you're uh, devoting your life to. I'm getting married soon, so that's also uh, just like that. Uh, we also had these huge knowledge gaps, right? So everything that I just told you was basically what we knew at the time about reef mantas, which was not much, but we knew none of that stuff for oceanic mantas practically, right? We didn't know anything about uh, what habitats they use, how their populations are connected, where they're traveling to, uh, how many there are, none of this stuff, basic stuff that any you know third grader when you go and talk about mantas, that's going to be the first thing they ask you, right? And every time we would say, well, we don't know yet. Um, so that's, that's great as a scientist to have something to tackle, right? Something interesting and new and novel that you can tackle. 
And then, of course, there was this pressing conservation concern, the fisheries uh, that at the time were growing and growing uh, with impacts that we weren't sure uh, what kind of impact they were, they were having on populations, but certainly not a positive impact. Okay, so this is sort of how I set out, uh, completely motivated to work on these animals. First stop for me was a little bit later in the year. Um, so Guy and I, the guy that I had worked with, uh, we traveled to Indonesia, and um, uh, this is a remote corner of uh, Raja Ampat, right in the Coral Triangle. Uh, and they have these fantastic cleaning stations where you get both species of mantas coming in uh, quite reliably, really interesting study site. Um, and we had gone to uh, work with an eco-resort based out of there, Misul Eco Resort, to see if we could start a, a local manta project to help better understand um, how these animals are moving around, how they're using habitats in the area, and so on. And uh, it became especially uh, relevant as we considered you know, to ourselves that these cleaning stations with these beautiful animals were just a few hundred miles away from these fisheries, which were catching hundreds of mantas every year. And so uh, at that point, it became clear both that understanding how they're moving around, you know, if the same animals we're seeing are the same ones being caught in these fisheries, is very important, understanding their movement patterns, their population's geographic range. Uh, and it also became clear that these kinds of questions that we were interested in couldn't be answered by us alone. And so this is when we uh, got together with a few other colleagues and researchers and started this organization called the Manta Trust with the goal of uh, collaborating with folks all over the world to start answering some of these questions, filling these knowledge gaps, um, and using that information to improve the conservation status of mantas, especially in threatened places like Indonesia. So uh, started this project in Indonesia a few months later. Um, I went to probably one of the most formative places for my work in mantas. This is the uh, Ravia Hijero Archipelago off of Mexico. Uh, Socorro, maybe you guys know it better by that name. Um, and so I went uh, there for a couple weeks and joined Bob Rubin, uh, who's a, a researcher with the Pacific Manta Research Group, um, on a project there. He was very kind to invite me. Uh, Bob is probably... Uh, the guy who's been working with mantas the longest. So he started working with mantas down in Mexico, uh, in Baja, and out at these islands in the 70s, when nobody was interested in these animals outside of, yeah, let's go diving with them. Um, so what Bob has been doing for 30 plus years is uh, both himself and his assistants, and also working with the dive community, collecting those photographs of the photo IDs and tracking individuals across time. And so on this expedition that I was on with Bob, uh, he was explaining to me that they have gaps in sightings of some of these animals that can be 15, 18, 22 years apart, right? So you have a photo of one of these guys, and uh, you don't see him for 22 years, and then there he is again. Uh, and that's an extreme. You know, certainly many of these animals uh, routinely had gaps of one, two, three years as well. Um, so the question started budding in my mind, well, what are they doing in between those sightings, right? Are they going somewhere? Uh, are they crossing the Pacific Ocean over to Indonesia where they might be caught? And there's also a lot of basis for uh, seasonal visitation at these sites. So these aggregation sites like in Mexico, like in Indonesia, um, we see peaks in sightings in certain months of the year and then other months where, you know, there are virtually no mantas present. And these are a few different examples of that. Uh, you know, peaks and sightings in French Guiana. Uh, this is from some of our work in Mexico and uh, in Brazil as well. And this is the case almost everywhere, especially with the oceanic mantas. So if we look at other species, 
that are large, that live in these sort of offshore oceanic habitats, they tend to move around a lot, right? So this is uh, a map from a uh, paper several years ago that basically aggregated all the tagging data uh, that had been collected on big animals, whales, uh, sea turtles, um, seabirds, et cetera, et cetera, marine mammals. And virtually all of these big guys are making these epic migrations, right? So baleen whales traveling from the poles towards the equator every single year. Uh, you've got leatherback sea turtles that quite literally cross the Pacific from Indonesia uh, to the California current right off our coastline here uh, just to feed. And so this as well was in our minds, you know, pretty much every other big animal that we know of is making these long migrations. So that kind of fits with our expectations uh, given these long gaps in sightings. So this was interesting from a, an ecological perspective and a sort of scientific curiosity. Uh, but it was also important from a conservation perspective for us. So around this time, uh, the first evidence started coming out of uh, widespread declines in manta populations as a result of these fisheries. Um, so we saw decreases in sightings that were published uh, from divers like many of yourselves, um, more decreases in sightings at specific locations as opposed to the sort of global data set, um, as well as more recently uh, declines in catch rates in areas uh, where you know, folks are fishing for mantas, which is usually a telltale sign of populations starting to crash, right? When you're trying just as hard to catch them, but you can't. Um, so understanding how animals are moving around is very relevant to this conservation question. So if you've got a declining population, it's important to understand who's responsible for managing that population. And with these large, highly migratory species, uh, often it's an international question. Whereas with animals that tend to stay local, you can have significant impacts uh, you know, with one government or even one community, as opposed to having to deal at this sort of uh, difficult international level. So that was on our minds, um, and that sort of led the, the bit of work that I'm going to talk about tonight. Uh, also around the same time, uh, some other folks started to uh, release results that they got from tagging the smaller reef mantas. And so these guys, while well, they're mobile, so they can move a few hundred kilometers, um, and, and indeed they do, they also tend to stay within a pretty restricted area. So they're coming back to the same sites routinely. Uh, they're exhibiting a lot of residency behavior. Um, again, not you know, making long distance migrations and so on. So our expectation for oceanic mantas was that they were gonna be making these sort of long distance migrations like a lot of the other large pelagic animals that we know of. Uh, but at the same time, their sister species, the reef mantas, were exhibiting more of this sort of residency behavior. So when we set out to tackle this question with oceanic mantas, uh, we knew that for an animal that lives 60 years or more, um, just tagging them wasn't going to be enough, right? So a tag lasts for six months. Uh, it reports back, and we get a little snippet of where they went. But that is definitely not representative of their entire lifespan, right, 60-plus years. So we used a few other methods, which I'll talk about uh, briefly without getting too down in the weeds. Uh, stable isotope analysis and, and genetics, which probably everybody's familiar with, um, to look at this connectivity and these movements at larger timescales, uh, longer timescales, and also larger spatial scales. So uh, to start with, we had two sites in Mexico. So these were sort of my study sites. Uh, one of them is those islands, the Riviejero Islands, which are about 300 miles off of Baja, out in the middle of nowhere with no other land around. Um, and then a mainland site, who's been to Puerto Vallarta? 
for some uh, margaritas and a party. Uh, you can also go for mantas, which we did. And uh, so in that bay, Bahia de Banderas, uh, that's our, other, our mainland study site. And uh, my friend and colleague, Calvin Beale, took over the research in Indonesia, where he uh, led all of the tag deployments. And uh, a colleague of mine and friend of mine, Daniel Fernando, uh, led the tissue sample collection for the genetics and the stable isotope analysis from a market in Sri Lanka. Uh, and meanwhile, Calvin and I also collected uh, tissue samples from mantas, both in Indonesia and then me from Mexico. All right, so this is the fun part. This is what it looks like for me to go out and do a bunch of work in the field. Um, these guys, as I said, they're really gregarious. You know, they'll come to you. We kind of, at this particular site, the boiler, we jump in the water and we just kind of wait for the mantas to come for us, uh, come to us. So it's pretty, pretty easy. Um, and then we deploy these archival satellite tags, uh, and they don't seem to mind very much, which is nice. And so what these tags do is they stay on the animal for, as I said, about six months. But because mantas aren't breaking the surface very often, uh, they're not able to transmit a satellite position or a GPS position to us like an air-breathing animal might. So instead, these tags are collecting data on light level, and we can use that to piece together where they moved uh, by looking at the day length in relation to what we expect based on different latitudes, and the, uh, um, the time at noon as it's offset from Greenwich Mean Time to figure out the longitude. And because they're also collecting information on depth, uh, we can correct it with bathymetry maps. And temperature, we can compare to sea surface temperature maps uh, to reduce that error and have a better idea of where they're going. So we did this for uh, four years. We deployed tags at those two sites, or three sites, uh, two in Mexico and one in Indonesia. And uh, when we first started getting these tags back, they were popping off you know, less than 100 kilometers from where we put them on. So not exactly what we were expecting. Um, and as we put out more and more and more, we had exactly the same pattern. And when we started looking at uh, you know, what happened in between the deployment and the pop-off, sure enough, these animals just did not seem to be moving anywhere. Uh, so in both cases, the deployments in Indonesia and Mexico, at no point did any of the animals we tagged leave the, uh, the EEZ, the exclusive economic zone, which is essentially the political boundary of the country that we tagged them in. So that's really important because everything inside your EEZ is your property as far as you're concerned as a country. Nobody else can come in and uh, take your fish or catch your mantas from your EEZ without your permission. So this was really interesting to us because it means that uh, potentially these guys are a resource that can be managed at a national scale as opposed to an international scale which tends to be much more difficult. Um, also really surprising was that even between our two sites in Mexico, which are only about 300 kilometers apart, we weren't seeing any exchange, right? So we didn't have any animals that were tagged crossing between those two sites. Okay, so as I said, you know, this is only six months per animal. Uh, that's not the full lifetime of one of these guys. So we bumped it up a notch. Uh, we started looking at stable isotopes. So a quick sort of primer on how stable isotopes work. Um, you, you know there's this old adage, you are what you eat. Uh, that is definitely the case for isotopes. So whatever food you're eating is broken down by your body and it's incorporated into your tissues. And those uh, foods that you eat hold unique signatures of isotopes. And so I can you know, pluck somebody's hair and tell you how much corn you're eating, uh, which is probably a lot for Americans. And, uh, and the same goes uh, for spatial uh, uh, variation in isotopes. So isotopes also vary by region. 
And so if you're a uh, manta ray that lives up in the northwest U.S. and you're a little bit of a homebody, uh, you're going to look very different from a manta ray that lives in central Texas uh, who's eating, you know, locally grown steer or whatever. Um, now, if you're a retired manta ray and you're disembarking on a uh, voyage of discovery to all of the various national parks around the U.S. and you're stopping at, you know, road stop uh, uh, restaurants, which all obviously, you know, uh, only provide local fare, then you're going to look like some average of everywhere that you've been and that you've eaten, right? Make sense? Um, so we can expect the same with mantas because we, we also see these differences uh, in uh, isotope signatures by location in marine environments. We just don't have pretty maps like this from the U.S. Uh, and sure enough, we saw really defined structure as opposed to just sort of a scatter plot, um, you know, of these animals all over the place. So what this means is that uh, the mantas that we sampled in, uh, let's say, uh, Bahia de Banderas, near shore Mexico, look different from the mantas uh, that were sampled out of these offshore islands isotopically. And they, uh, they vary in predictable ways. So we expect to see these changes in carbon isotopes, for example, between nearshore and offshore habitats. And we also expect to see these differences in nitrogen isotopes between these productive eastern Pacific upwelling zones, like where we live, uh, as well as Mexico, and these less productive uh, oligotrophic or nutrient-poor ecosystems like Indonesia and Sri Lanka. And because mantas are enormous, uh, their tissues turn over very quickly. So what we're looking at is about a, a two-year average of what they've been eating. So that takes our, uh, our tagging results and bumps it up to at least a few years uh, with a consistent pattern. And then, of course, for good measure, we uh, did some genetic analyses on those same tissue samples. And uh, without going into detail about what the, uh, the plot is saying here, you can tell that each of those places looks different. That's good enough. Um, and what that means is that there is genetic structure between these populations that we're looking at. Um, it doesn't mean that they never cross and they never mate but it means that they do it infrequently enough that genetically they look different. So all of this came as a big surprise to us, uh, given what we were expecting. And uh, what it was telling us was that, in fact, it looks like oceanic mantas uh, exhibit behaviors similar to their smaller reef manta cousins in that they aren't making long, epic migrations uh, across the Pacific and so on. Uh, they tend to be much more resident, as far as we're finding. So this is uh, really interesting down in Mexico, and it also has uh, some relevance to historical um, fisheries and conservation uh, information that we have. So while we were working at these two sites, actually in the 70s, if you wanted to go see mantas, you would go to the coast of southern Baja. That was the place to see them. There used to be dozens and dozens and dozens of mantas on every single dive. Uh, that was up until the 80s and 90s when artisanal fisheries uh, basically wiped these guys out. So they fished them down to virtually nothing, right? And uh, at that point, no longer could you see mantas in southern Baja. So if, if these three locations where we know that mantas exist were all connected, uh, once you fish out mantas in Baja, uh, for starters, you'd expect to see declines as well in some of these other sites. But as soon as you stop fishing, and they did stop fishing to some extent after mantas were protected uh, by Mexico in the 90s, you'd expect to see a quick recovery as mantas from these other two sites start to repopulate the Gulf. Uh, but after about 20 years, 
of, uh, of protection, there was virtually no recovery. Uh, that is, up until these past two years. So in these past two years, we've started to see crosses between our two sites uh, with acoustic tagging methods. It's a slightly different method. We put a little pinging tag out on a manta, um, and we put a listening station down. And so we only know if the manta was present if it came within about a kilometer radius of that listening station. So we don't know where they go when they're not being heard by those stations. But animals that we tagged out at the islands were being heard uh, uh, on the mainland side and vice versa. And also in those same two years, we started to see a lot more mantas showing up in the southern Gulf of California around the tip of Baja. And so uh, we don't know exactly what's happening yet. But what we think is happening is that uh, despite that low connectivity, you do occasionally get movement and pulses. Uh, and I think that might be related to the El Ninos that we've had recently. So uh, in these El Nino periods, productivity declines. There's less manta food around, less zooplankton. Uh, so my theory is that they're having to travel a little bit further afield to find food. Um, and that's what's leading to some of these crosses that we're seeing, as well as potentially, hopefully, uh, a little bit of a repopulation or a recolonization of that impacted area in the southern Gulf. But what this also means is that these sorts of artisanal fisheries are having pretty dramatic impacts on small, somewhat isolated local populations, uh, which almost surely is what's explaining these pretty precipitous declines of mantas that we're seeing uh, in response to the fisheries. Okay, so uh, this was weird, as I said, um, and our next question was, well, what makes mantas different from all these other large uh, animals living in these pelagic environments? You know, why are they the exception? Why aren't they moving around uh, like whale sharks and like baleen whales, other big planktivores? And uh, to answer this, we started looking at the diving behavior of these animals. So those same little archival tags collect information on uh, vertical movements, right, depth and so what we can do, uh, sorry for the, the graphs, um, what we can do is look at changes in how mantas are spending their time vertically across months. And indeed what we see, so April, May, June on the top, uh, July, August, September are the months that we had data for, and we see this gradual shift away from the surface and down to deeper depths, right? And across all of these months, we also see this bulge where mantas are spending time around these black bars. And those black bars are the location of the thermocline. And no matter where that thermocline seems to be, the mantas are, are following it, right? If it gets deeper, they're going down and they're following it as well. So what we know about the thermocline uh, is that, so if you don't know what a thermocline is, that's a, a rapid change in water temperature. So it's where a couple different water masses meet. <clears throat> and with that really rapid change, you also have a big density gradient because warmer water is lighter than colder water, saltier water is heavier than less salty water. And that density gradient accumulates phytoplankton, which is zooplankton food. So you, get to t you tend to get the grazers, the zooplankton, hanging out around that thermocline. Um, and sure enough, we tend to then see those zooplankton predators, which are mantas, also hanging out around that thermocline. So they're able to, uh, to maximize that foraging success, again, by changing where they're spending their time vertically, uh, and then we also see that shift from what we think is surface feeding uh, in those uh, spring months down to this deeper sort of behavior. Um, so we go from spending a lot of time up near the surface, uh, gradually less time, less time, less time, and more time in these deeper depths until we get this kind of peak uh, 
at nighttime diving behavior um, at this sort of 150 meter plus range in September. Okay, so what do we think that is? Well, uh, there's a phenomenon called the deep scattering layer. And so the deep scattering layer is this massive accumulation of zooplankton and small fishes that spend their entire day down deep, uh, two, three, four hundred meters, where it's still dark, because uh, water is really good at absorbing light. And they're hiding down there, avoiding visual predators. And then they wait till nighttime to come up to their, uh, their sort of uh, maximum or minimum depth around about 100 meters uh, to feed, where they can still avoid predators because it's nighttime. And so mantas, you know, they get to just open up their mouth and go down, and uh, they don't really need to see what's around. So we think that what they're doing is diving down uh, to that upper extreme of the deep scattering layer at night in order to feed on that. So all of this is to say that we think that mantas are very plastic in how they're able to feed. So they're not specialists, they're generalists. And the stable isotope data that we have from other regions, which can tell us what mantas are eating as well, uh, also supports that idea. So we see something uh, similar in the reef mantas as well, where they're spending uh, their time coastally in this sort of uh, more shallow environment. Whereas when they go offshore, where you expect to have the deep scattering layer, they're spending a lot more time uh, down, presumably accessing that. Now, all of this, uh, before I say that, uh, you should care if you care about manta rays, because where they're spending their time uh, impacts how likely they are to get caught in different types of fishing gear. So if you're spending a lot of time at the surface in certain months, you're more likely to get caught in these surface set gill nets. Whereas if you're spending time you know, down around 150 meters, you might be more likely to get caught in these midwater trawls. So this also has some conservation implications, and we hope that understanding how they're moving around and diving uh, will help us especially mitigate bycatch. But all of this is sort of conjecture, right? The tag, we know what depth the tag was at, but we don't know what the manta was doing. Unless we get lucky, uh, this was a really neat observation that a colleague of mine had out at the islands. He just happened to be down in a submersible, because some people just happen to be down in submersibles sometimes. And, uh, and they saw a, a manta feeding at about 150 meters um, on this really dense school of zooplankton. That is a ton of zooplankton right there. Uh, so that was a very happy manta. But we don't get these kinds of observations very often. So for the last year, we've been uh, teaming up with the National Geographic Critter Cam program to try and uh, spy on mantas to see what they're doing and see if our, uh, what we think is happening in terms of feeding and habitat use is actually the case. So uh, CritterCam has deployed these animal-mounted cameras on, uh, I think, over 50 species now, which is really neat. They're incredible guys. Uh, Greg Marshall, who runs the program, is kind of your old-school explorer guy, uh, a lot of fun to hang out with. Typically, the animals that they're deploying these cameras on uh, can be caught somewhat easily. So penguins are uh, a fun one, I hear. You just kind of round them up in a little pen, and then you put this camera on with a little harness, um, and the, uh, the penguins go off, and they forage, and then they predictably come back to the same place. And that's the same with a lot of marine mammals, air-breathing mammals especially. Uh, they'll go out, they'll feed, and they come back to their beach or their haul-out area. So then you can go and recover that camera and see what happened. Um, you know, often uh, with things like sharks, it's not that easy. Uh, but sharks have these nice big dorsal fins, which you can clamp a critter cam onto. Uh, and you also get a great view. Now, mantas kind of suck for this because they're these giant flat disks. 
Uh, they've got a, a teeny weeny little dorsal fin back there, and it's not a whole lot to speak of in terms of clamping things to, and it's also not going to give you a very good view if you succeed in that. Uh, so the, the first part of this whole project, you know, we were putting our heads together thinking about, well, how in the heck can we actually attach a camera to one of these things? Uh, you know, we thought about looping something over their cephalic fins, but uh, number one, that's really traumatic for them, uh, and there's, you know, potential to do some damage to the eye. Uh, so we ended up not going with that. And we were actually out at the islands, uh, and you know, we were planning on deploying them just the same way we deploy those tags. But that was, we didn't really want to do that because it ends up leaving a little titanium anchor uh, in the animal. And for these camera deployments, which you know, we're talking five, six hours, uh, it seemed like very invasive work um, you know, just to be getting that short period of footage. So we were out there ready to do that, not really liking it, when Greg said, well, you know, I brought these suction cups. This is what we use on whales, uh, so let's give it a try and see if it works on the mantas. So mantas have this uh, very sort of sandpapery skin. They've got denticles like sharks, unlike whales with that smooth, blubbery thing. So I wasn't sure if it was going to work, uh, but Greg said, you know, the remoras are pretty good at doing it, so I, I, bet, I bet it'll work. Uh, and sure enough, you know, Greg's 30 years of experience doing this paid off. And uh, not only did it work, but this view right up here that we managed to get with the suction cups is probably better than anything we could have hoped for, right? So, uh, you know, we get a nice view of the cephalic fin right here so we can tell what they're doing. Uh, when they interact with other mantas, they tend to do these little wiggles and shakes and unroll their cephalic fins, which have a lot of electrosensors. Um, we get a bunch of this cool footage of them uh, socializing, especially at these cleaning stations uh, out at the islands. Uh, we're starting to see a little bit of um, stuff on habitat use, uh, which the next video, I didn't time this very well, uh, the next part of this video is going to show you they're actually spending a lot of time on the bottom, uh, which we can't tell that from tags. We just know what depth they're at. We can tell if they're at the surface, uh, but just because the tag tells us you know, they're at 50 meters, we don't know if that's 50 meters in blue water, uh, 50 meters over a rock pile, 50 meters over the sand. Uh, so we don't know what kind of habitats they're using from that tag data. Uh, and these critter cams are starting to give us some insights there. Now, the majority of what we see is uh, this, <laughs> which is not very interesting. So I picked out the good parts for you guys for your viewing pleasure, uh, but I have sat through about 40 hours of this, which is just as exciting as it looks. Uh, and, you know, the video stopped, and you guys didn't even notice. All right, so uh, our, main, our main limitation with these critter cams is that with a suction cup, uh, we were only getting a couple hours of footage. And we wanted to try and uh, extend that so we would get you know, a better view into what's happening with each animal. Uh, the places that we tend to see them at are these cleaning stations, and we don't just want to see them cleaning. Uh, we also had to institute a rule that after we put a critter cam on, we'd get out of the water because the mantis just wanted to play with us, and we didn't want any selfies uh, of us. Those aren't very useful. <laughs> so we came up with this active suction uh, technique. So you can actually pump air through a Venturi pump, which is connected to that suction cup, uh, and increase the suction instead of just passively pushing it onto the manta. Uh, this is actually sucking it down. And those proved to be pretty successful. They upped our retention time to around six hours maximum, which was great. Um, and again, here, this is really exciting for me. Uh, so what just happened here, I'm going to have to walk you through it because it doesn't look that exciting. 
So here's a manta unrolling his cephalic fin as he starts to swim, or she actually, as she starts to swim through this super dense uh, zooplankton school. The resolution on these isn't super high uh, because they have to be a really tiny little package, so the sensors aren't very big. Uh, but this was super exciting. This was the first time we ever actually recorded uh, feeding behavior on one of the critter cams. And uh, you know, this camera popped to the surface. We took it back uh, to our little field station. We started reviewing it, and we said, oh my god, look, they're feeding. And uh, we, we also get temperature and depth data from these, um, from these cameras. And so we could see that the area that they were feeding in was actually right in the thermocline, uh, as we had sort of anticipated from the tags. And we could also see this you know, massive density of zooplankton that they were feeding on. Uh, so the next day, we went back to exactly the same place. And yes, it was a day later, uh, but we did zooplankton toes down deep around that uh, you know, 30, 40 feet that they were spending their time at feeding. And we did zooplankton toes at the surface. And sure enough, the density of zooplankton in the thermocline was extraordinary, and there was virtually nothing at the surface. Um, so these are allowing us to sort of uh, start confirming some of our hypotheses, uh, as well as learning new things uh, that the tags can't tell us. So just this past fall, uh, some colleagues and I went to the Maldives again. It was nice to be back. And we started deploying the critter cams on reef mantas, which is what we're looking at here. And these guys are really interesting because unlike the oceanic mantas that tend to uh, spend a lot of time uh, alone, uh, not very social, these guys travel in these little squadrons of reef mantas. So they'll spend hours and hours and hours together. Uh, they'll feed together, which this is a, a you know, manta point of view of feeding. Um, and sure enough, they're feeding in deep water right in the thermocline. Uh, as was suggested by these other tagging papers on reef mantas. Um, so it turns out we're pretty good at interpreting tag data. Uh, and we also get some really neat footage. You know, this, this is stuff that you can observe um, just you know, on a boat or snorkeling. Now they're in a pretty shallow channel, um, all feeding together cooperatively. Uh, but what we can start to do, uh, which we are planning to start doing, is sometimes we can get an ID of the manta that this guy was with. So let's see if we have any examples of that. You can imagine that you know, if this manta swims underneath another manta, we'll get that spot pattern. And we can actually do uh, these network analyses to see who these mantas are spending their time with, if they're always feeding with the same mantas, uh, if they're trying to mate with the same mantas, if they're traveling in groups. And these are all questions that you know, we have never been able to answer before, uh, which the critter cams are allowing us to. So here you go. You can, kinda, you can imagine that sometimes we get a nice ID shot. Um, so this is all really neat, exciting stuff for us, uh, and we're kind of just in the early stages of the critter cam work, and uh, hopefully when I come give my next talk in two years, we'll have some cool results for you. Okay, so that's going to be it. Just a few wrap-ups. Um, I hope that I've convinced you that mantas are awesome. Uh, if not, I haven't done my job well. Uh, they're big, they're smart, uh, they're super gregarious, they're fun to work with. Uh, you all should try and go diving with them. Uh, because that economic input also helps uh, provide an alternative to fisheries, makes them economically valuable. Uh, and they're also a really exci exciting species for me, and hopefully you too, uh, because we still have these huge knowledge gaps. There's so much that we have yet to learn about these animals, um, and that makes them really exciting to me. Uh, these populations, as we've been learning with our work here at Scripps, uh, are more fragmented than we thought, so they're not undertaking these sort of epic migrations. They're not moving huge distances. Uh, and that's 
Not so good for conservation because it means that populations are more vulnerable to fisheries, but it is encouraging because it means that we can uh, get local communities on board with protecting them, uh, which tends to be much more effective. Um, and we talked a little bit about feeding, and we think that a mechanism for that residential behavior uh, might be that generalism and behavioral plasticity, their ability to change what they're feeding on uh, instead of targeting specific prey that might move uh, horizontally in space. And then we have some encouraging news uh, that some populations, after they've been protected, despite being fished down, have the capacity uh, to recover uh, if we choose to do so. So there are a lot of people that I need to acknowledge. Uh, this is not all just stuff that I've done by myself. There are a huge number of collaborators, literally dozens. Uh, I've tried to you know, credit them, the main collaborators in the talk, uh, but there are many, many more who I can't list. But uh, just know that they are absolutely integral to this work. Um, a lot of organizations and people have supported this work, um, private donors, uh, granting organizations, and collaborators <coughs> who have made this possible. Uh, thank you to the people who pay my salary. This wouldn't be possible without them, uh, that's for sure. So a number of fellowships have uh, supported me in this work. Um, and then my soon-to-be wife, Madeline, uh, made this talk worthy of your eyeballs. Uh, she is a graphic designer, so thank you, Madeline. And with that, uh, I will take any questions that you might have. Okay, so the question was, uh, what are manta predators and how many of them get eaten? Uh, that's not something I had time to include in the talk, but it's a very good question. So mantas are pretty big, um, and they're a big flat disc, which makes them hard to stick cameras onto. Also makes them hard to bite. So you can imagine, you know, trying to take a chunk out of one of these guys isn't so easy. So their main predators are sharks, big sharks, bull sharks, uh, tiger sharks, things like that. But they tend to just take kind of a notch out of the back of their pectoral fin, right? So in areas that have higher shark densities, we see a lot more shark bites on mantas. Uh, we don't think that there's a lot of mortality from that, but then again, we only see the ones that survived, uh, so it's hard to say for sure. Orcas also occasionally eat them, uh, but that's pretty infrequent. So their, uh, their natural mortality, which was your, you know, your sort of second part of that question, how many of them actually get taken by predators, is really, really low as far as we can tell. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So um, the question was, you know, cleaning stations, uh, tend to be on reefs, which is true, whether they're coral reefs or rocky reefs. Um, and do we see interactions between the offshore populations and the nearshore populations? Really good question. Um, so in the case of our two nearshore and offshore populations, uh, they're completely separate and they have different areas in their localities that they would clean. Um, so at the islands, you know, there are a bunch of cleaning stations that they go to. On the mainland, we actually haven't identified very many cleaning stations, uh, but surely they exist somewhere. Now, the two different species, uh, in areas where their ranges overlap, you can get reef mantas, which are spending a lot more time on the reefs. Uh, but, for example, in Indonesia, we also get oceanic mantas, which are presumably spending more time offshore, that will come into the reefs. Uh, and they'll clean there. We'll also even see them socializing with the reef mantas, you know, uh, co-species uh, flirting. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of these pelagic species will actually come into reefs, mantas, big sharks, uh, and it seems like it's probably an energy flow as well from these offshore environments 
into uh, reef environments where they're starting to you know, pick all the parasites that these guys have collected out in the open ocean? Good question. Okay, uh, so if I heard you, I think you said, uh, do we know where the juvenile mantas are spending their time? Um, so just in the last few years, we've started to um, find reef mantas spending a lot of time in lagoons, the little babies. Uh, so there are a few places in the Maldives and in Indonesia uh, where field researchers have um, found you know, young of year, newborns, and very young guys uh, who seem to be sort of sequestering themselves in sheltered lagoons. And we see that same sort of behavior uh, in sharks. You know, the pups will live in mangrove habitats and lagoons because they're relatively safe from bigger predators that maybe can't make it in there. Um, same is happening with reef mantas. Oceanic mantas, we have absolutely no idea. Uh, you know, only a couple sightings of pups. They get landed in fisheries at times, but we don't really know where they're coming from. So uh, still nothing known about those guys. Okay, one more. Yeah. So the question was, uh, is the dorsal or the top surface of the manta as unique uh, and identifiable as the uh, lower surface, the spot pattern? Um, in some cases, yes, especially if they have scars and things like that, uh, but they're just not as unique. So there can be you know, very clean animals that don't have scars or you know, rubbing or anything uh, that look very similar, and those patterns also tend to change a little bit over time. Sometimes they fade. Uh, and the scars can, you know, obscure their little shoulder patches. So the belly ID is sort of the gold standard for us. Cool. Uh, I think that's all we have time for, but I will be around if anybody wants to ask me questions. So thank you, guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.